Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Sex should encompass this this mutually intimate, pleasurable experience that's passionate, that is what God ended. And that's how it's talked about in the Bible, Hmm. is this mutual, passionate, intimate experience. And so it makes no sense to say to a woman, do not deprive him of sex, or to say to a husband, do not deprive your wife of sex, if sex is merely intercourse where he reaches climax. What's she being deprived of? She's being deprived of nothing. Mm. <laughs> you know, if we're going to say do not deprive each other, they don't just mean one-sided intercourse. That verse is talking about do not deprive each other of a mutually satisfying, pleasurable, intimate experience. And so if it's not mutual, pleasurable, and intimate, it's got nothing to do with that verse. So saying that she just has to have intercourse because he wants it is not biblical at all, even if you use that verse. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Sheila Gregoire on the show today. Uh, She is the author of seven books, including The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and to Love, Honor, and Vacuum. She's a sought-out speaker across North America, affiliated with Family Life Canada and World Vision's Girls' Night Out program. She's got a book coming out pretty soon called The Great Sex Rescue, which I know many of my audience are going to be interested in. She's been sharing little snippets of her research for that, and it's been fascinating for me. And the blog's just been blowing up. You've got millions of monthly page views, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about how Christian culture deals with the topic of sex. I am just so happy to be able to talk about this to people who are critiquing the church because this is this is my baby. So we're going to have some fun. (laughs) Yes, it's a it's a topic that gets talked about a lot. Um, Sex, purity, 
marriage gets talked about a ton. Those are buzzwords you hear in Christian culture a lot, but to be critical of how the church deals with the subjects is pretty uncommon. And uh, those who do tend to get uh, looked down on a little bit. So uh, you're brave for jumping into this, uh, this arena. Yeah. And we're kind of, I I know there's going to be a firing squad on us as soon as the book comes out, because (laughs) we really are being critical of a lot of the most popular evangelical books, but we did it with science. And and that's what I want people to understand. So basically what we did was I have been blogging for over a decade about sex and I'm trying to give really healthy information. You know, I wrote the good girl's guide to great sex. I wrote 31 days to great sex. I'm talking about how great sex is, how to make things feel good, how to initiate sex, how to have fun. And no matter what I say, people still had all of the same issues. And I started realizing that you can't just keep giving good information if the problem is that there's a foundation there that's rotten. Mm. And what happened in so many spheres of evangelicalism, especially the most fundamentalist side, is that the messages that people got growing up and in their early married years about sex and marriage have really impacted sex for the worse. And so it doesn't matter how much good stuff you tell them, unless you can get rid of the bad stuff, things aren't gonna get good. So we decided we were gonna look at this in an academic scientific way. And we surveyed 20,000 women. It's the largest survey ever been done of Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction. And we looked at which evangelical teachings impact their marriage, their marriage and their sex life for the worst and uh, came up with some pretty things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was, uh, this morning, I was kind of just going back through kind of prepping for this and, and trying to just, again, get a feel of of the topics you cover. And you, you were breaking down some of the statistics about um, that you'd come across in your study. And it is, it's just fascinating, like how um, one of your studies was about how um, women perceive that men were always going to push their sexual boundaries. And so you said it affected mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 50% of women only had sex. They thought the only time they would have sex is when they felt like they were forced to, you know, and there's, there's stats yeah. like that that are just absolutely alarming um, when you start hearing about it. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's one of those things that's strange when, you know, sex is dealt with as being this, you know, kind of wonderful thing when you're talking about it, you know, in, in, um, in Christian circles, but then when it comes to the actual act of sex, the way that it's explained is either not at all or very poorly. And so, Mm -hmm. um, people are having Mm -hmm. very, you know, very difficult experiences with something that shouldn't be that horrifying, you know, when you get married, it, it, most Mm -hmm. Christian people that I grew up around and, and this was largely, you know, our experience was you, you don't talk about sex. You don't talk about sex. You don't talk about sex. And then you get married in about two weeks before people are like, Hey, by the way, here's a couple of things you should know. And it's just not helpful. So um, what, what first got you recognizing like, Hey, this conversation is completely broken. Like the way we're addressing this um, isn't working. Well, there is a little bit of a personal element to this because before I got married, I I was like exactly what you just said, you know, two weeks before you get married, someone gives you a book. For me, it was about two months. And the book I was given was The Act of Marriage by Tim and Beverly LaHaye. Right. And up until that moment in my life, I had been really looking forward to sex. Like, you know, you're counting down the days to the wedding and what you're really counting down is the days until you get to have sex. Like it's not just the wedding, it's the wedding night that you're really looking forward to. And I loved my fiance, 
we got along great. We were both looking forward to this. And then I read this book and it was as if my whole body shut down and changed because the way that the act of marriage talked about sex, it was something that the woman owed the husband. Right. So it was something that you had to give him. And it changed the whole nature of how I saw it. Because until then, it was something that I was excited that we were going to explore and experience together. And all of a sudden, it changed it to something that I owed him. Mm. So it took sex from being this profound knowing to an owing. Mm, yeah. So instead of sex being something where we would be intimate together, it became something that he just needed and I needed to give him. Um, and it was like consent was totally out of the picture. And I felt like nobody has their right to touch me if I don't want them to. And it wasn't even that I didn't want him to. It was just that I needed it to be something that I was deciding to do myself instead of it being something that was an obligation. Mm. And um, part of my story, which I've shared in, in all of my books and in this upcoming one too, is that when I first got married, I experienced something called vaginismus, which is um, sexual pain that a lot of women can have. Um, where penetration is just really painful because your muscles contract. And um, one of the research questions we were looking at in our survey was, are there certain messages which increase the rate of sexual pain among women? Because it's long been known in gynecological circles that uh, Christian women and especially fundamentalist Christian women have twice the sexual pain as the general population. Hmm. So this is a big problem that no right. one talks about. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the big messages that contributes to women's sexual pain is that idea that you are obligated to give your husband sex. Hmm. And so I actually think that's not the only reason I had vaginismus, but I think that was a contributing reason was reading that book. Right, right. Yeah, well, you've got that. Um, I mean, it changes the dynamic a, a ton. And one thing I talk about a lot that comes from the the fundamentalist view of just women in general. Um, and this is something that my wife and I talk about is that in most fundamentalist cultures, you know, and, and, you know, whether it's IFB or whether it's some other fundamentalist sect of Christianity, you have women who are essentially property of their fathers, you know, or their, or mm -hmm. usually their fathers, their, their parents. And then you you remain property of them until the, the, ownership is transferred to a husband. That's the way that it's kind of laid out, whether it's or not it's explicitly said, that's essentially what it said. And many times it is explicitly said like that, like you're, you're ours until you're your husband's, you know, and that way of looking at it is just, it's such one, it's such a bleak thing, but it also removes a lot of that autonomy from the woman, like the person who should be granting the autonomy. And we do that with kids too, you know, like people asking permission, can I spank your kid? It's like, well, there's a lot of conversation about how much of that you should be doing with your own kid, you know? So it, it's, there's a lot of mm -hmm, conversation about mm -hmm. autonomy, a lot of things about the view of women. Do you, you say fundamentalist cultures, do you think it's, it's primarily that, do you think it's just that way that we view women just by itself, as opposed to even just sex, like going back another layer, do you think it has to do with our view of women mm -hmm. themselves? Yeah, well, let me give you one example. Um, in the book, Every Man's Battle, they have a very disturbing anecdote where a father of three who was in his 30s was, and I'm doing this by memory, so please excuse me if I have some of these details wrong, but uh, he was volunteering at a youth group and he started, quote unquote, flirting with a 15-year-old girl. I think the proper word there is grooming, but they mm -hmm. described it as, as flirting with a 15-year-old yeah. girl. And eventually they had sex. 
Um, again, the proper word there is rape, not sex, right. for and three reasons. Um, she was a statu- yeah. yeah, statutory rape, um, clergy sexual abuse because he was in a position of power over her. And, um, and it, it also wasn't consensual because she went in and she told her parents right away what had happened. Um, and, and this anecdote was used to show that lust can get men into trouble, not to show that you can end up hurting a girl. Like he was, he was really portrayed as the victim there mm. because at the end of the story, the problem was that now he might get turned in and what was going to happen to his life. So it wasn't about the girl, but, but what was really problematic about this is that this anecdote fell under the category, under a heading of violating your neighbor's fence or stepping over your neighbor's line or something like that. So, so it was just, and the only thing I can think of is that he was violating the girl's father or something like this by what she, by what he did. And so again, it paints her as property because Mm -hmm. the, the line he crossed was he took something away um, from the girl's father, not from the girl herself. And so there definitely is a lot of that. I, I think I think the other um, the other big underlining thing, and and this goes along with that, is that women exist to uh, give men what they want and need, and to prop up men. So it's not only that their property; it's that their function is. Um, is to satisfy men's desires. So for instance, King on Every Man's Battle again, um, in that book, it literally calls women methadone for their husband's sex addictions. Wow. So, you know, it says, um, be a merciful vial of methadone for him when his temperature is rising. So if a guy is, is, is battling lust, then she should, in their words, give him release and be a merciful vial of methadone so that he doesn't battle lust. So what, what they're really saying is, here's what he really wants. He really wants to lust and masturbate to pornography um, and to that really hot woman, but he will settle for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can satiate his desire um, so that he doesn't, he doesn't try to get what it is that he really wants. Wow. Yeah. It's just extremely dehumanizing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's all, it's a ton of, pressure and it, 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 it puts you in that kind of, I mean, it, it really puts you in a victim position, you know, it puts you in this position of like, you know, if anything does happen. So if your husband does do this, if your husband does, you know, go out and do fill in the blank, it's because of you, the, mm-hmm. the issue, the issue remains yes. with you, never with the guy involved. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really sad way to look at it. Um, and like you said, it, it at that yeah. point. And, and that's, and that actually is a really good way of putting it. And that's really prevalent in, in the resources. Like for our book, we, we did survey these 20,000 women, but we also read um, the top 10 marriage bestsellers in Christian, in evangelical circles and the top six um, sex books, uh, excluding my own. And, um, and we looked at how they, how they handled 12 different measures of healthy sexuality. And one of them was, do they blame women when men watch porn or have an affair? And to give an example, like the book Sheep Music, Kevin Lehman, you know, tells women, if you're postpartum or having your period, you need to give him a hand job or oral sex so that he won't watch porn. Mm. You know, and, um, and again, it's just that idea <laughs> that that your job is to stop him from sinning. And it, 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 that has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing right. to do with Jesus at all. No, you know, because Jesus said it's your responsibility. 
And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to withstand temptation. There is no temptation taking you except what is common to everyone. And God is faithful and he will provide a way to escape so that you may be able to bear up under it. You know, first Corinthians 10, 13, like, like there is no excuse. Um, And yet what a lot of these resources do is they put the blame and the responsibility on women for men not sinning. And that wrecks sex for women. Like as soon as you do that, orgasm rates plummet, um, women's trust in their husbands plummet. Like when women are taught this, it's really terrible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, it's interesting. So you're bringing scripture into this conversation, which I think has been the only verse I think ever gets used when you're, when you're dealing with this topic is, when you get into first Corinthians seven, which is like about not refusing sex you know, yeah. to each other. And and that's the yeah. go-to verse that you commonly hear. But again, you're negating so much of like, what does love between a man and a woman look like? And like when you, when you're looking, it's, it's kind of like how we use, you know, why submit yourselves to your husband, you know, we extract that one mm-hmm. section and, you know, blow it up and put it on the wall, like super big letters. But then it's like, well, yeah love your wives as Christ of the church, the dynamic there and like how that actually structures itself looks a lot. It looks a lot different than what gets preached from the pulpit very often. So um, yeah. So what was the response when you first started diving into this topic and you first started identifying like, this is an issue, obviously that's things to work through personally, or you're kind of figuring that out for yourself. When's the first time you're like, man, this is a widespread problem. And I, I need to start kind of putting myself out there mm-hmm. to kind of say like, Hey, everybody, there's a problem because that's a, that's something I talk about on this show with abuse. Like there's people who just are like, I'm going to put that behind me and never look back. And then there's people who like drive back and start getting everybody else out. (laughs) And so uh, what, what put you in that second category there? Well, it all, it all started in January of 2019. And this is going to sound weird, but I, I've, I've been writing marriage books and sex books for, um, for quite a few years. My first book was out in 2003. I've been blogging, I've been speaking, but I never read a lot of Christian books. Hmm. I really didn't. Every now and then I would read something if I was asked to endorse. Um, but I never actually read a lot because I have this paranoid fear of plagiarism and I don't want to inadvertently (laughs) plagiarize someone. And so I just always wanted the thoughts to be my own. So I just never read these books. And then in January, 2019, I was involved in this Twitter conversation about love and respect because some woman commented that she really needed respect, not just love. And then I jumped in there too. And I thought, you know, I've never actually read that book. And I happened to have a migraine one day. I didn't want to blog. I was just looking to goof off, but I had the book in my cupboard. So I pulled out love and respect. And I'm in the Myers-Briggs personality thing. I'm I'm an N. I'm like a really big picture person. I'm not an S. I'm not a detail person. So Mm. a normal human being, when they read a book, would start at the beginning. I don't do that. (laughs) So, So I flipped through the book and found the chapter I was most interested in, which was the sex chapter. And I read the sex chapter and it was like an atomic bomb went off in my house because that changed everything for me, reading that, realizing that this is the best, other than the five love languages, this is the best selling marriage book in the evangelical world. And what it said about sex was this. Um, If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Okay, so men need sex and women don't. Um, You have to give him sex no matter how you feel or he's very likely to have an affair. If he has an affair, it's your fault, Hmm. at least partly. Um, You need to understand how much he battles lust if you expect him to understand your body image issues. And that was it. Hmm. 
there was nothing in there about sex being more than physical. In fact, he even said that the purpose of sex was physical release, like was a man's physical release. There was nothing about it being a mutual knowing as the Bible talked about in Genesis four, there was nothing about intimacy. There was nothing about the fact that she could experience pleasure at all. In fact, one of the reasons that, that he gave for women sex is why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? And I just have a hard time believing that someone who is trying to sell women on how great sex is would say that it takes very little time. <laughs> considering that most women take a lot more time than men do right. if they're going to feel good. So women's experience was completely missing from the conversation. And um, as we got, I started blogging about this, I, I took it further than just sex. I, I took a look at how he treated abuse. Um, yeah. And then we sent, it was so bad that we sent a report off to focus on the family of, because I had, I had hundreds in that one week, I had hundreds of women sharing their stories with me of how they had been abused and how this book had enabled their abuse. Right. We wrote to focus on the family who promotes it. I had been on the focus on the family show three times. So I yeah. knew them and I thought they would listen. They ignored us. And so we decided if they can ignore several hundred women, maybe they won't be able to ignore 20,000. And that's why we did the survey. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so this all starts with focus on the family then. It's a, it's a good chunk of the, the Yeah, love the, and respect part. and focus on the family, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, that's really, that's really cool. You, you mentioned abuse. So you mentioned, obviously, that's been the, the crux of my show. Like, it's been just what, you know, what fuels abuse? Like, what is it that's causing um, abuse? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times those conversations, they can go back to, blaming a lot of things other than the abusers. So we can get into, you know, there's a long laundry list of things people like to point to and say, well, maybe this is why. Um, but when I, when I first got introduced to you a few months ago and like, I've been kind of just, you know, like browsing here and there looking at this. Um, I think a lot of what you, you go over and a lot of the misconceptions that you discuss, and we mentioned so many of them treating women like objects, treating women like their property, um, when you have that mindset preached, I think it, I think it opens the door for a lot of abuse to be justified. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, a lot of the abuse we're seeing in churches, which is a, a lot. I mean, we're seeing even in the Southern Baptist convention right now, you know, we're seeing a, a pretty heated conversation mm -hmm. about abuse there. Um, a lot of it goes back to the pulpit. And again, every abuser is responsible mm -hmm. for themselves. You can't, you can't blame, um, they'll be quicker than anybody to say, well, it was the preaching or it was the pornography or it was this. The reality is a lot of people sit in these environments and don't abuse. So there's, there is some level to that. You have to take mm -hmm. personal responsibility, but what factor do you think our, um, you know, our views of sex and evangelical culture plays in abuse? And like, do you think that that's a key factor in why we see so much abuse starting to come out to the surface right now? I have several issues. Um, one, of course, is just this idea that women exist to um, prop up men. And so then if, if he feels like he's being disrespected, then she isn't doing her part. And that mm. certainly results in abuse. One of the things we looked at in our survey and in our book, The Great Sex Rescue, uh, was marital rape. Mm -hmm. um, 
when we looked at when we when we looked at all our books. Oh, and by the way, everyone listening, we we created a twelve point rubric of healthy um, sexuality, healthy sexual teaching, healthy messages, with, along with a scorecard. So you could score between zero and four, and we explain what a zero, one, a two, a three, and a four would look like. And then we applied that to all of these books. And if you want to see that rubric and that scorecard, see how different books scored. There'll be a link that I will give you, and you can share that Perfect. with all of your listeners, and you can download that because it's kind of interesting and it, it shows it shows you a few of the stats about the great sex rescue and then you can get the book to see more but um one of the one of the questions that we were looking at was do these do these books do our christian resources even cover the concept of consent the fact that she is allowed to say no and um as i said we looked at all of these best-selling marriage books but we did look at a secular book as our control book Hmm. So, and we applied our rubric to that. And the secular book was John Gottman's. It was the best-selling secular one, John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. On our rubric, you could score up to 48 points. John Gottman scored 47. Love and Respect scored zero. So our best-selling secular book scores 47 out of 48. Our best-selling evangelical one scores zero. Now, there were good ones, like Gift of Sex also scored 47, Intimate uh, intimate Issues, Sacred Marriage, Boundaries of Marriage, those all scored well, but a lot of our Christian resources scored really badly, and none of them, even the, the ones that, that scored well, none of them, except for the secular book, mentioned consent. Wow. None of them mentioned, and some of them did give reasons why women might say no, but most of them did not. Most of them use the do not deprive verses that you talked about yeah. to say that you are never allowed to say no. And let me just give you one, um, one quick story from the act of marriage. Uh, and I hadn't remembered reading this. I, I must have read it before I was married. But as I was reading the book again for this, it's like, okay, this makes so much sense why, why I have such a residual hatred for this book. But Tim LaHaye was telling the story of this woman who's getting married, this young woman who's getting married, and her aunt Matilda comes to her and tells her that sex is terrible. And Tim LaHaye says, sometimes people will wreck sex for you because they'll tell you sex is terrible. And this is just such an awful thing to do to young people. And he tells the story of Aunt Matilda, how when Aunt Matilda married, she married uh, a farmer who was much older than her, and he had to hold her down and rape her while she was kicking and screaming on their wedding night. And this continued throughout their, their married life that she never wanted sex. And so he had to always hold her down while she was screaming. And, and so this is why she didn't like sex and how awful is it that she told this girl that she didn't like sex. And then Tim LaHaye says this, he talks about the husband as being clumsy and older but how sad is it that Matilda and her equally unhappy husband have never been able to enjoy a good sex life? So he says that the rapist is equally unhappy as his victim, and he doesn't see this as a problem. And I read the fourth edition of The Act of Marriage. I know that book was published in the 70s. But the edition I read was published in the late 90s, and nobody thought to take that anecdote out. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it, 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 but they, I mean, that's, that's every example that you give 
is that same, it's that same response for me when I see these, these things pop up and, and it's so, the thing is, is like, it's not these fringe groups teaching this stuff. Like it's not, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this weird corner church is teaching really twisted stuff. It's like, this is Tim LaHaye. <laughs> like this is like mm-hmm. as household name in that world as you can get. And yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much everyone who got married before 1995 in the Christian world yeah. read the act of marriage. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, but even let, let's go back to first Corinthians seven for a minute. Cause I just want to revisit this. Cause I think this is an important point when people say, and those verses, for those of you who don't know often, and I'm not going to quote them exactly, cause I can't remember them exactly, but it's like, um, the husband's body does not belong to the husband alone, but also to the wife and the wife's body does not belong to the wife alone, but also to the husband. So do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And for a time, that you can come together for prayer, whatever. Um, but when we, when, when people quote those verses, do not deprive each other. There, there's a bigger question here because when people use those verses to say, don't deprive each other of sex, right. but we need to ask, first of all, what does sex mean? Hmm. And second of all, what does deprive mean? And, and you may think that's an odd question, but if I were to ask you, did you have sex last night? And I'm not going to do that. So don't worry. But if I, if I were to ask you, <laughs> chances are you're thinking something very specific in your head. Right. Like if I say, did you have sex last night? What most of us are thinking is, you know, did he put his penis into her vagina and move around until he climaxed? Like that tends right. to be our definition of sex. Right. Now, what we found in our survey is that the majority of women do not reach orgasm through intercourse alone. In fact, the majority of women do not, you know, who do reach orgasm (laughs) tend to reach it through other means. Even if they can reach orgasm through intercourse, they tend to need a lot of foreplay as well. Um, So very few women, it's like 30% of the women who do reach orgasm, reach it through intercourse alone. Okay. And of women, we also need to realize that there's a 47 point orgasm gap. So 95% of men reach orgasm pretty much all the time or almost all the time they have sex, only 48% of women do. So we've got a 47 point orgasm gap. Okay. Mm. So if we're defining sex as he puts his penis into her vagina and moves around until he climaxes, then we're saying sex, like he does all the experiencing and she's just lying there counting ceiling tiles and that still counts. Mm. And so his sexual experience is prioritized over hers. I don't think that's sex. I think what that is, is intercourse. And I I wish what we're trying to argue for in the book is that we need two different words. When it's a one-sided sexual encounter, when it's just intercourse and he reaches orgasm and she feels nothing, that should be intercourse. Hmm. Sex should encompass this, this mutually intimate, pleasurable experience that's passionate, that is what God ended. And and that's how it's talked about in the Bible Hmm. is this mutual, passionate, intimate experience. And so it makes no sense to say to a woman, do not deprive him of sex or to say to a husband, do not deprive your wife of sex. If sex is merely intercourse where he reaches climax, what's she being deprived of? She's being deprived of nothing. Mm. (laughs) You know, if we're going to say, do not deprive each other, they don't just mean one-sided intercourse. That verse is talking about do not deprive each other of a mutually satisfying, pleasurable, intimate experience. And so if it's not mutual, pleasurable, and intimate, it's got nothing to do with that verse. 
Mm. So saying that she just has to have intercourse because he wants it is not biblical at all, even if you use that verse. Okay, so we've identified an, an issue. And I, I think, you know, like I said, it, it comes down to a lot of just how we view women, like how do we view the topic of sex itself? Mm. And like we both said, you know, you've got these large organizations, churches, you know, pastors, things that are sharing these I mean, I hesitate to even say old idea. I mean, they're, they're sharing very poorly misguided ideas Mm -hmm. about sex. And Mm -hmm. part of that makes a lot of sense considering it's largely men in pulpits that are preaching. So it's going to be from a male Mm -hmm. perspective. So you're writing a book called the great sex rescue. It's coming out soon. And we're talking through, how do you, how do you solve this problem? How do you rescue sex from essentially Mm -hmm. being corrupted by the evangelical kind of subculture, um, generally fundamentalist culture, but even broader as we see with Tim LaHaye. When you say rescuing sex, when you think about the idea of changing this dynamic from being the kind of horrid examples we've heard thus far, like what's the, what's the starting point? Like what's the solution for this? Is it getting this into Mm -hmm. churches? Is it getting it? Do we have to circumvent the churches because they're not going to change this and you have to kind of go to one-on-one kind of like what you're doing through your blog. Like, what do you see as the, like, what needs to change over the next couple of years in the kind of realm of evangelicalism to kind of correct this? Well, I hope that what, what we try to do in the book is to identify the really negative messages that are toxic and then show people how you can take them and reframe them. So for instance, one of our toxic messages, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Okay, that was highly correlated with all kinds of nasty stuff that you want. <laughs> you know, women's lower orgasm rates, more fear that he's going to watch porn, less marital satisfaction, all kinds of nasty stuff. And interestingly, that that belief hurts women's orgasm rates, even if they've never believed it themselves. If they've simply heard it, if they've been taught it, it hurts them, even if they've never believed it. So just being in a subculture where you hear all the time that all men lust is going to end up hurting you. Okay. So, but, but what do we do with the fact that some men do lust? Okay. Well, how about if we just talk about it in a healthy way? And so what we try to do in the book is identify healthy is to reframe this stuff. First of all, what do we mean by lust? Mm. And noticing someone is attractive is not lusting. I think that we have put such a burden on guys and um, where, where they believe that they are lusting even if they find someone attractive. And that doesn't mean you're lusting. That means you're human. You know, lust, it's not lusting to see someone beautiful. It is lusting to look after at a woman with a specific intent. Mm. So to notice someone is beautiful is not lusting. Yeah. (laughs) You know, even like, even to be surprised and look at her for a second is not lusting to mentally undress her, to imagine something that gets into the realm of lust. And yet we have whole books talking about how you need to bounce your eyes. So you never see women. Right. Instead of teaching us how to respect women. So let's, let's, let's call lust what it is and let's call what's not lust, not lust. That's very important. But also instead of saying, you know, all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Say this, say, Many people struggle with lust. You know, a lot of times it's guys, but, uh, but many women do as well. But lust is not universal. You can overcome it. The Holy Spirit can help you get through this. And you can learn to respect people as people made in the image of God. Mm. 
not there just for your own pleasure. And that is a nuanced, empowering message that points us back to Jesus. Hmm. Whereas the message that we've been given points us to women having to make up for men's lustful things. And what it never, what it never even takes into account is women are visual too. Yeah. Like what these books say over and over again, like Emerson Egridge, love and respect. If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Um, uh, it, it says that over and over again in many of these books that, that women, you'll never understand how much your husband needs sex. Like women, you'll never understand because you don't need sex. You weren't created for that need. You need affection and he needs sex. Well, in 60% of marriages, yes, he has the higher sex drive. Right. But in 20% of marriages, they have the same sex drive. And in 20% of marriages, she has the higher sex drive. Right. <laughs> so it's not even true yeah. like that, that women don't have sex You're starting drives. with the but false what premise. Happens, yeah. Yeah. And what happens if women grow up hearing you don't need sex, you're not visual. He is, you don't need this. What you need is affection. And then women get married and we wonder why women have no libido. (laughs) Yeah. right. Because we've told them their whole lives. They don't. So what I'm hoping is that as we start to take these beliefs and reframe them, show here's a healthy way to talk about this issue. You know, and that as people read the book, I really think when you guys read it, you're just going to feel so validated and so seen. It's going to be like, oh my gosh, I wasn't nuts. I wasn't crazy when I thought that. It's really, I kind of describe it when I read The Great Sex Rescue, it's almost like watching a train wreck. Like you keep thinking, no, it can't get any worse. And then you read Aunt Matilda and you're like, oh my gosh, it got worse. And (laughs) it just keeps getting worse. But then we end up pointing you to, this is a healthy way. There's a way that you can get out of this. And there's a way that you can see this in a healthy way. And I just hope that because we've got so much data behind this, like 20,000 women, that we've taken it out of the realm of having doctrinal conversations about this stuff. And now we're just in the realm of data. So you know what? If people want to argue with me, um, well, it's just simply true that you shouldn't deprive your husband. And the Bible says you shouldn't deprive your husband and you just can't. Then I can say, okay, you can believe that. But if you do, she has a 28% higher rate of having genismus. <laughs> like, you know, you can believe that. But if you do, she's not going to orgasm as often. Well, that's so if you preach that from your pulpit, the women aren't going to orgasm. <laughs> I mean, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the core problem though. No, I mean, it, it's, it's in a lot of these circles, the science hasn't mattered thus far, you know? So how do you take that? Mm-hmm. How, how can you change that mindset? Because if you told that to, to a lot of pastors, I can think through in my mind right now in the, in the list of people I've covered, even on the mm-hmm. show, I think with that information, their response would be, well, who cares? <laughs> that's not my problem, you know? And that's really mm-hmm. that main issue is still prevalent within that. I agree. I think, I think that there's a lot of people where knowing that information, it's helpful. And, and, and even for me, I'll, I'll give a hopeful story because I don't want to just be a Debbie Downer at the end and say, well, it's, they're not going to change. But like, I know I've spoken with a couple of pastors recently um, who I'm, who I'm, you know, at least close with or friendly enough to have conversations with about the show. And I've heard from a couple, you know, the conversation about pornography, for example, and, and the, the change for, uh, for them, you know, and, and I would say even for, even for myself, like the, the way Cause, cause pornography was always something where, you know, it was the conversation with me. And when I would talk with other Christian men was like, you know, well, porn's a problem because it's a sin, you know, so we know we're not supposed to do it, but there was no, 
like it was basically like if you're not a christian there's no moral or ethical reason not to partake like that it's literally it's one mm-hmm. of those things you just don't do it's kind of mm-hmm. like sex you know like you we abstained like we yeah. would have sex now if not for you know we have to wait till marriage like that's like the rule you know so we keep mm-hmm. the rule mm-hmm. but a lot of guys i've talked to the 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 change with the porn problem starts happening when you start identifying the humanity problem. So you start looking at, so the conversation with, with one of them was like, you know, for me, uh, one of the pastors was saying for me, one of the things that keeps him away from it, even beyond the lust conversation is like, cause the lust conversation was not helpful. A lot of the time, the conversation that helped me was when we started diving into stats about human trafficking, when we started talking about, um, mm-hmm. you know, how it affects women and how, you know, partaking in that industry and, and all of the, so for mm-hmm. him, it was, putting humanity back into woman instead of woman being a product, because essentially the conversation was, you know, um, it was like, okay, well it's, you know, you watch porn because that's what you need as a man, you need this. And then mm-hmm. you get married and now you don't have a need for it. You don't, why are you doing that? You don't have a need for it. You're married. And, and again, all you're doing is turning your wife into the same product as porn. Like the two things are equal um, in that conversation. And so I would say for guys who are truly, understanding that aspect, I think it makes that easier. Obviously, you know, you're still going to struggle with certain things. Some people are more visual and they do struggle with, with different things or struggle with, with lust. And some people struggle with, you know, the mental side and that's guys and girls, both like there's people who have those things, Mm -hmm. but I think the conversation has to go back to injecting the humanity into it and not making it Mm -hmm. this kind of consumerism thing. Like, Oh, well now I have I basically have my own personal porn star. I think that's how most guys tend to view it. And, and again, that's singling out guys. Like I'm sure there's some women that would fall in that category as well too. Um, But yeah, I I think the thing that concerns me the most is the places where I think this message needs to be heard the most. I'm thinking about IFB pulpits, you know, or, or pulpits that are more, you know, Mm -hmm. aggressively fundamentalist where the science isn't going to matter. Um, I'm concerned about the rescue side of the people who are stuck in those places, who are in those pews and where you can go to them and say, well, the woman's not going to get any pleasure. The woman's not going to feel this, the, Mm -hmm. the women are being hurt and the response is, you know, we don't care. Like, how do how do you, I guess that's, and I don't know if there's a good answer to that question, but like, that's where I'm just like, man, what, how do you inject this perspective shift into these places where it's needed Mm -hmm. the most, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've been blogging since 2008. And um, one thing that I have really found is that sex is the gateway into health for mm-hmm. so many people. So many, like so many, for so many people who might be very, very fundamentalist, it's when they start having sex problems that they start looking into this stuff and they start seeing that the way that we see women doesn't work. It's much easier to make headway on a lot of these issues when you talk about sex than it is when you just simply talk about marriage and you mm. get into headship and complementarianism because yeah, that's right. all doctrine. Yeah. But um, most guys honestly want their wives to feel good in bed. You know, most guys do. And yeah. a lot of women just don't. Yeah. And so they're they're really quite desperate. Um, you know, on my blog, to love, honor, and vacuum.com, I've got such a wide range of people there. And I always have. Like most blogs tend to settle into either liberal Christians or conservative Christians. And I've got the whole spectrum because people are coming to well, my blog because they just want to figure out how to make sex work. I spent a and lot so of time like trying to pin is- down where you were. <laughs> so I, 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 that's true. <laughs> like with yours, I, cause when someone recommended you, 
I mean, first I heard the name and I was like, I hope this is tongue in cheek. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, mm-hmm. and then I went in and I was like, I was looking at her. I was like, what is she? Like, what is she? Is she, is she more conservative? Is she more liberal? Is she, is she Baptist? Is she that? And I was trying to pin down like, what, who is this person? And yeah, you touch so broadly into all of those areas. And I feel like it's helpful for anywhere on that spectrum. Yeah. And so I think, and and so, you know what? I don't think we are going to change the fundamentalist pastors. I think mm. you're right. I think that they don't care. And, and I'm not even trying to change the fundamentalist right. pastors, but I know that there are people in the pews who just want to figure out how she can have an orgasm and they're going to read this book and they're going to realize that a lot of the stuff they've been taught is the reason that she's having trouble. Mm. And it's the reason that he can't get rid of porn. And it's the reason that they're not communicating. And when you put things in the realm of sex, it's often easier to identify these harmful teachings than it is when you just look at doctrines of marriage. And so I just think this is a tremendous gateway in, right. um, in into breaking down and giving, giving people who have grown up in these very fundamentalist churches and communities a chance to, to say, no, I want something better. And what I often, what I often encourage people to do is when you're reading this books, ask yourself, would I want to be married to that guy? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and for guys, you do wouldn't. you want to and be so that don't guy? Believe it. Right. You know, that's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's just, it's just a really interesting thing. And it, and again, I think the fact that you do dive into the science side of it and don't get lost in the doctrine side. And that, and that's even with this show, I've tried to avoid, I mean, I have certain episodes specifically dedicated to where I just share my opinion on, on a lot of things. Cause people ask, you know, mm-hmm. like, what do you, and I do think doctrine plays a huge role in you know, how we deal with this stuff, but you have to go mm-hmm. back a step further and say like, okay, we could disagree on a lot of things. Even the complementarian discussion, there's people I respect mm-hmm. who are complementarian and women that are complementarian, men that are compl- like, I don't think that's the big issue. I think that's a big part of it. I think you can dive into that a lot. And there's a lot of, I don't even know your position on a lot of those things, but again, we can go back broader and just say, is there humanity associated with the person we're talking about? Like when it comes to conversation about how we're dealing with different races, genders, like, can we at least just Mm -hmm. agree that there's like a baseline humanity that has to be respected? And honestly, if we can respect that baseline humanity, a lot of the problems we're seeing get eradicated pretty quickly. But I, I just think, you know, like I said, going back to some of the illustration we talked about, like there is the way that people view women. And I, I think, I think this is true of like myself, you know, when I grew up in that culture was like, man, when you think about marriage, it was like, it was never the conversation like, oh, I can't wait to, you know, have this loving mutual relationship with somebody. or I can't wait to have this kind of, you know, given, you know, whatever you want to say, it, it was very much like, Oh, well then I don't have to work. Like so many guys I, I've, and I, and again, I know this cause I've talked to guys. So like people can't say like, that's your experience. Like I've talked to guys who are like the biggest thing that destroyed my marriage early on was that I thought when I got married, I wouldn't have a porn problem anymore. Or I thought when I yeah. got married, I yeah. wouldn't have the lust problem anymore. Or I thought when I got married, I'd be happier, you know, or I thought that like, I wouldn't be mm-hmm. so frustrated cause I can't have mm-hmm. sex. And it's like, all of those guys had the worst first years of marriage or the worst, you know, or three years down the road, it became a problem. And again, I think where you're going into it and just saying like, okay, let's think about both parties here. Let's look at the science of it. Let's look at why it's just a, it's just a much better approach than these very unhelpful kind of, you know, just Mm -hmm. general platitudes about like, oh, well, 
make someone happy or, or just do it. You know, I, I feel like it's kind of been the slogan yeah. for a Christian marriage has just been like, well, just do it. You know, like that's what you're supposed to do and it'll be fine. And it's like, no, there's, there's a lot more layers to it. Mm-hmm. But, um, anyway, I, I really appreciate you kind of, kind of sharing. I really hope people check out great sex rescue. I know I'm going to be checking it out as well. Um, and, uh, for those who want to connect with you, for those who, you know, are saying like, man, what's the number one resource that, I should check out first, you know, obviously you've got your blog. Um, but, but if you could say, Hey, this is the book, this is the resource. This is the best introduction to what I do. What would you recommend to people? Well, I mean, obviously the great sex rescue, I don't know when this is coming out. It, it releases March 2nd. So the book's we'll either going we'll to tie it in somewhere where it makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And, and again, you can download our scorecard and our rubric um, right now. There's a link that, that, you'll, that will be shared with this podcast so that you can get that. Um, I've written a book called 31 days to great sex for couples who just things aren't going well and they need to figure out how to make it better. And it's just, it's really fun. You just read two to four pages a night and do what it says. It's 31 days to great sex, not 31 days of great sex. So I'm not (laughs) saying you have to have sex for 31 days straight. Um, A lot of it is just learning how to talk about this stuff, you know, learning how to be more affectionate, unpacking your baggage, um, dealing with what intimacy really means for you. And then of course it's all spicing things up and learning how to make it feel good too. So that's, that's a really fun resource. Um, but you know, I, my, my prayer is just that people will read great X rescue and see we've been lied to mm. and we don't need to put up with that, but there's a better way through. And as we talk to people in our focus groups, so many told us of the first three, five, 10, 15, 20 years of marriage being terrible in the bedroom. But when they got on the same page and when they realized that it wasn't just about his release or um, sex was something which was good and she was allowed to look forward to it, things really did change. And we just heard from so many people who things had turned around and women who had amazing things to say about how much their husbands had loved them through that process, even if Those same husbands had really messed up in the first 10 years. And so I I just found that really encouraging that once we get rid of these really toxic beliefs, you can figure this out. And I hope that the book can help you. I really think it's going to be validating for a lot of people. And it's also a really fun read too. That's awesome. Well, yeah, definitely guys check this out um, in the show notes, go uh, just click the link. I'll have a link where you can pre-order the book um, or order the book, depending when we decide to release this uh, specific episode, <laughs> but no matter what, just check the show notes, you'll find a way to get connected and at least know that it's going to be on its way to you really soon. And uh, yeah, definitely check out some of the other resources list, uh, listed. Um, I, I've been kind of spying on Sheila's stuff for uh, a little while here. So I've, uh, I've gotten to see what she does. And it's really, really good stuff. Um, regardless of what denomination you find yourself in, um, it's, it's worth checking out. But uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show and for taking some time to chat. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.